Good morning, everyone. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark, and we will be reading from chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. This is the beginning of a very brief three-part series that I have entitled Gospel Politics, How to Recover After an Election Year. And I've said to myself several times, I think I'm crazy in the last week. Because honestly, I don't have an answer for that. How to recover after an election year, I don't really have an answer. I'm not claiming by doing this for three Sundays any kind of special insight or new knowledge on how to navigate the tense political and social times that we're in. Who does? I'm actually hoping for the next three Sundays to draw us together by remembering. Remembering. Remembering timeless truths that Christians, and frankly, if you're not a Christian, you as well, can apply wherever we live, whenever we live in human history. Drawing us together by remembering what and who does not change. I can remember years ago, I was probably 10 years old, two relatives who I loved and respected tremendously getting into a huge political argument in the middle of a, a extended family gathering. Like, I'm talking yelling and screaming to the point where nobody had a good time for the rest of the evening. And, and I remember being petrified that these two people that I loved and respected so much and looked up to could, 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 be, could, could ex exhibit such, such animosity, what I thought was animosity toward one another. And you know, some of it I'll just excuse as New York, Italian, Jewish stuff going on at the moment, uh, but it wasn't all that. Uh, it, it, it was politics. And I was petrified. I thought, this is it. We'll never have a nice extended family gathering ever again. And sure enough, the next family gathering, I was afraid to see what these two individuals would do to one another. And I was shocked as a kid that they hugged. And, and it was as if nothing had ever happened. I saw between the two of them a respect for one another, an enjoyment of one another that as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old kid, just absolutely surprised me. Uh, what I discovered, you know, in hindsight, was that there was enough that they found common ground in, that they were able to get past. They were able to choose to look beyond 
their personal political differences, and they were able to, by choice and effort, maintain a loving relationship, a respectful relationship. So in a similar way, my prayer is that we can find enough common ground in our faith and in our Lord to outweigh whatever differences we have and have expressed to one another. Common ground by remembering what the Bible says about three things. And there are many things, but just three for the next three Sundays. Authority, witness, and unity. God's authority in a world where we, as our sister said earlier, we all have to submit to somebody. And Christians witness in that world. And finally, Christians' unity in that world. If you're familiar with the Bible in the Old Testament, you remember that moment in, in the book of Joshua? They're outside of Jericho. It's before the assault on Jericho. And Joshua is confronted by a man in military garb holding a sword ready for action. Uh, do you remember that? Do you remember what Joshua asked him? Uh, he said, are you for us or for our enemies? Right? He wants to know who this intimidating figure is and, and whether this figure is, is going into battle for them or, or for their enemies. And, and, and it's interesting what the figure said. Neither. Or in another translation, no. <laughs> Are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer was no. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now theologians have said for decades that they believe that that was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity of the Son of God. And I believe that that is true. So in that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ says, uh, no, I'm not for you or for your enemies, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, I don't want to misapply this passage for our purposes today, and I don't want to misappropriate it for what we're dealing with right now as a church or as a society. Uh, but what I can say about it is that Jesus, is, Jesus comes at all the stuff we're wrestling with, with and struggling with from a different angle. He comes at it from a different vantage point and He doesn't play along with our expectations and our schemes and desires. And what I hope you're going to embrace today as we get into His answer, His famous answer to the Pharisees and the Herodians, is that Jesus is not for you in your politics but He is with you in sorting them out. Jesus is not for us in our politics, but He is with us as we struggle to put God first in our politics. And as I unpack that idea, I just want to talk about three basic things. The authority that God grants to human leaders in this broken world. And the authority that God demands for Himself and only Himself. And finally, the authority that God surrendered and gave up. So the authority that God grants, the authority that God demands, and the authority that God surrenders. Now the authority that God grants to, I'm just for the sake of argument going to say, all human governments is legitimate. The authority that God has entrusted to human government everywhere at every time is legitimate. 
The first half of Jesus' famous reply to the the religious establishment leaders uh, of his day absolutely astounded them, we find out at the end of this passage. The word is to literally amaze somebody to the point of being speechless. Right? And this was his famous reply, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's the first half of his amazing response to them. Just as a background, what, what Mark's gospel, and actually Matthew's and Luke's as well, tell us is that the Pharisees and the Herodians came to him. Now, uh, these two groups were polarized in a 25-year-old debate over whether or not Jews should pay taxes to the Romans. Now, the word there that Mark uses in verse 14, taxes, is not just general, it's very specific. It was a Greek word that was borrowed from the Latin word for census. The Pharisees and Herodians were talking specifically about the poll tax that was instituted in the year A.D. 6 when Jesus was a boy. And this poll tax uh, basically was... It was so controversial in its day that it immediately uh, provoked a rebellion led by Judas the Galilean. And the basic, the basic slogan of that revolt in AD 6 was essentially, God alone is Israel's king, therefore it's unholy and it's unpatriotic to give taxes to Caesar and to the Romans. Actually, that became, for decades, this tax the symbol of unwanted Roman subjugation. And in the end, many decades later, after Jesus, this intense unrest in Israel brought about Rome's final wrath against the Jewish nation, basically annihilating it in A.D. 66 to A.D. 70. But at this moment before Jesus, you have uh, the, the seeds of that. You have the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were, they were kind of pro-Israel in their religious zeal, and they, they hated this poll tax. On the other hand, you had the Herodians. The Herodians were kind of like uh, Roman sympathizers. They were allied to the Herods, and the Herods were like little regional puppet kings who, who benefited, under Caesar, benefited from the poll tax. So in the, in the Pharisees and the Herodians, you basically had this religiously charged big government, small government controversy. And it had gone on for decades. It had polarized them, and now they're trying to drag Jesus into the argument. And although they hated each other, they had one thing in common. They despised Jesus, who had just come in triumphantly into Jerusalem. Right, this is close to the crucifixion. It's just after the triumphal entry. They're angry with Jesus for his triumphal entry where everybody praised him. They're angry with him for messing up the court, uh, the, the court of the Gentiles in the temple. They're angry with him for refusing to answer the question just in the chapter before, whose authority, by whose authority are you speaking and doing all these things? So this whole part of the Gospel of Mark is about authority. And Jesus refused to answer them. So at this point, the Sanhedrin, which is basically the, uh, it's the council of religious leaders, they send to Jesus, that's the they in verse 13, the Sanhedrin. They send these, these Herodians and these Pharisees to ask him a really tricky question. They're trying to trap Jesus now, and they ask him, in verse 14, right, they butter him up with hypocritical praise. It's all true, 
right? He doesn't, he doesn't bow to anybody. He's his own man. It's true, but they're, they're full of baloney, and they're just buttering him up. And then they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is a tricky question, because look, if this Galilean, and remember, the, the, the revolt that they remembered from decades ago was led by a Galilean. Jesus is from Galilee. They know this. So if this Galilean also has an anti-Roman attitude and stance, well, then he'd be guilty of, of treasonous behavior. They could go to the Romans about what he says if he's against the poll tax. On the other hand, if he supports the tax, they know he'd be despised by the Jewish people. He'd be as despised as any crummy tax collector. So ultimately, what they're trying to do is get him in trouble with the Romans or make him irrelevant with the people. It's a tricky situation. But his, his astounding reply was first set up by a question. So they question him. He first, then re he responds by first questioning them. And he says to them what? He says, bring me a denarius in verse 15. So the, the denarius was basically a, a full day wage, a full day's wages if you were a laborer. A decent amount of money. It was, it was the required currency to pay the poll tax. He says he didn't have any on him. Apparently they did, somewhat ironic. He says, give me a denarius. So they give him one. He looks at it. He asks them a question. Now, first of all, on, on, on the front side of the denarius is a bust of Tiberius Caesar. And it, and it basically said, well, in Latin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the flip side, it was a picture, uh, 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 an image of his, his mother, Livia, and it said, high priest. So Caesar God on the front and high priest on the back his mother. Can you imagine how, how a God-fearing Jew in the first century would have been morally scandalized by, to have to take this coin and pay the Romans a required tax? Can you imagine how insulting and humiliating that was to a proud Jewish God-fearing person? So now, looking at the denarius, Jesus asks in verse 16, whose likeness is this? And whose inscription is is this. Whose face is it and whose name is on the coin, right? Caesar's, they say. And then his answer is pretty amazing. I'll paraphrase it. Give the guy his money back. It was literally Caesar's money. That's his name. That's his face. That's his coin. Give him his money back. In other words, if, if you're a part of this society, then those who lead the society have their rights. The pastor Mark Dever has been shepherding DC people, DC professionals, government professionals, government contractors for decades in the Capitol. And in his very helpful little book, God in Politics, he responds to this passage by saying, by this, Jesus shows us that the legitimacy of a government is not determined by whether it supports the worship of the one true God or even if it allows it. And so Jesus' amazing reply here, with shock, which shocks them all, it became the basis for how the early Christians, the early church, would exist in a hostile society. A society that would be hostile to them for hundreds of years. You see the Apostle Paul picking up this theme in his letter to the church in Rome in the middle of all of this. And he said to them, there is no authority except from God. 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. He basically said, therefore, whoever resists, resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And he said at the end of that passage, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor. First seven verses of Romans 13. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, picks up on the same theme. He says, he says submit to the emperor. And actually, about 100 years after Paul and Peter, in the second century, it was Justin Martyr in his first letter to the emperor of his day, where he writes, Whence to God alone we render worship, but in all other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men. God grants to human governments authority, and in almost every case, we should honor it. Now before you go, hold on, hold on, what about corrupt authority? We're going to get to that next Sunday. <laughs> but hold on, there's more. There's more to Jesus' answer. Jesus said more. Um, the authority that God demands for himself, right? despite the authority that God expects and begs us to have for, for human leaders because he entrusts it to them at every level, from your household to your classroom to your sports team, to your job, to your church, to your society, to your government. The authority that God demands for himself is second to none. So the second half of Jesus' amazing reply also stumped the religious leaders, not because they didn't believe it, but because they weren't doing it. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. His question to them of whose likeness is on this, this coin, the likeness word is really important. That's a big deal. It's the same word that you have in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1, where we hear God say, let us make man in our image, in our likeness where it goes on to say God made, made us male and female in his image. You just as a coin bears Caesar's image, Jesus is saying people bear God's. And God also has his rights. It recalls what we see in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and they all would have known this when Jesus said that. Render unto God what is God's, they know. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You see, Jesus, in all of these debates, Jesus strips away whatever our political, uh, our social, our economic factors are. He strips all of it. It's not that it's not important, but he gets beneath all of that and he, he brings the debate right to the, the, the condition of your heart. See, the question really for Jesus is, what he really wants to know is, what do you love the most? Who do you love the most? John Lennon once said, today, America is the Roman Empire. I think in many ways he was right. Now, look, of course, we're not living in, in the first century. We're not living in the, Rome, the, the, the Mediterranean world having all the same concerns that ancient Jews and Gentiles had in that, in that part of the world during that time. But I, I think that 
I think that we love much of the same things as they did. We love our freedom. We love our money. We love our religion. We love our government. We love our ideas. We love our causes. We love our people. We love our people groups. And what Jesus is saying here is, where is God's place in all of that? In your heart, amongst all of these other priorities and tensions, where is God in your heart? They were silent because they knew that God wasn't there on His throne in their hearts. So honor God. This is the takeaway. Honor God with your politics. But, but here, here's what I'm saying. Honor God with your politics by subordinating your politics to His greater vision for the world. That's the key. It, it's, not conforming, it's not conforming the Word of God to your politics. It's, it's subordinating your politics to Him. And, and it's not that we can't engage in politics. We really should. And I'll talk about that more in the next two weeks. The, the reformed view on politics is really beautiful. But it's not that you don't engage in politics. Actually, I think while we can, we absolutely must. But if your first love is rightly ordered, then politics become secondary. Not unimportant. Not unimportant, but secondary. And when that happens, you become more objective. You become more open-minded. You become less discouraged when things don't go your way or the way you think they should. You become less arrogant when things do go your way. So honor God with your politics by subordinating them to His authority over your heart. Honor everyone. Worship God alone. Is really what Jesus was saying. So, ask yourself, to which authority have I been giving my heart? Not, to which authority am I honoring? You should be honoring authority. Ask yourself, to which authority am I worshiping? That's the question here. To which authorities are we actually giving our utmost devotion? Have you given ultimate authority to somebody else, to a party, to a cause, to an ideology, or to yourself? Now look, granted, the Herodians and uh, the Pharisees, despite their, their, their polarized views, they, their views had some, 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 uh, some they, had, they had a good point. Each side had a good point. Essentially this, believers should play nice with their government. I mean, do you want trouble? Are you looking for trouble? Play nice with your government, wherever you are. But citizens should hold their leaders accountable. Both sides of the debate were right about something. But like their debate, our polarized society, the polarization and the distrust that we have for one another, were less rooted in our own ideals that are in conflict with one another and more rooted in our common idolatry. All right, we, we're all going to disagree, and that's going to divide us, and that's going to polarize us. 
But where we're all pretty much in unity on is idolatry. We're all putting everything before God in our hearts. That's why both, si both sides walked away silence, so, walked away silent. We've made our thing in every situation. We've made our thing the ultimate authority. And Jesus is saying, I'm not on either side. I'm not for you in that. You love it too much. I'm not for you in that. And really, the, the only hope we have in, in, in a society that, that is uh, degenerating in, in a polarization mentality, uh, the, the only hope that we have in such instability, in such frustration and anger and discouragement and fear, the only hope we have is in the kind of authority that is so great and so sure of itself that it can surrender itself to serve its enemies. The kind of authority that is above all authority that truly deserves your worship is the kind of authority that showed us that it could submit itself even to imperfect authority in order to win us back to it. And think about it. What is the essential message of Christianity? That Jesus, the king of the universe, became a human being. He became an ethnic Jew who submitted himself, although he was the rightful Messiah and the king of the Jews, submitted himself as a Roman subject. Willingly. He willingly did all of these things. As Paul said in Philippians 2, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. Jesus knows what it is to be politically subjugated and powerless. Jesus knows what it is to feel politically or socially marginalized. He knows what it is to be legally misrepresented to the death. He knows what it means. And that goes along with the saying in Hebrews how He was tested in every way as we, we can sympathize with Him as our great high priest because He was tested in every way and yet was without sin. To the death He knows what you and our brothers and sisters around the world or our neighbors or friends who are suffering, He knows what everyone is going through. So although He is not for us in our little political schemes, He's with us in our struggle to do what He did first and what He did for us, which is to put His heavenly Father first in all things and to love His enemies. Jesus doesn't conform to your expectations. He will never conform to our personal desires and I think that for today's polarizing types of questions, okay, but think, think about it. Like how, however Jesus would respond to questions like, should we support, should Christians support Black Lives Matter or not? Should Christians, should Christians support Blue Lives Matter or not? Should Christians be about big government or small government? What should we think about universal health care? What should we think about immigration? Whatever the polarizing question is, I, I am willing to bet that Jesus' 
response would surprise all of us. All of us. Don't anybody in this room think, oh, his response would, would surprise so-and-so. No, it would surprise you. Every single one of us. And, and, and you know, maybe, maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need to be humbled by the Spirit of Christ through His Word. Maybe we need to eventually, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, for once be silenced by Jesus' influence upon our politics. Jesus humbled Himself under a flawed, oppressive, corrupt system to save you. To make us a people that would have higher priorities. A more beautiful vision of what God is trying to do in human history. And in your soul. And amongst our neighbors and co-workers and friends and adversaries. So how about we humble ourselves in the political tensions that we're facing? Because Jesus isn't for us in our politics, but He is with us. He is with you. Right? The God that said, Joshua, I'm not for you or your enemies, ended up delivering His people in the land of Canaan. And the Jesus that is not for you or for me in our personal political perspectives is nonetheless with us as we struggle. As we struggle and wrestle under His authority and His leadership to sort all of this out. Even though when we get to the end of sorting it all out, it's still going to look imperfect. And we're still going to disagree on some things. He's not for us, but He's with us as we wrestle with this. So, submit to Him. Let's honor Him with our politics by subordinating them, making them less than His great vision for His church, for your life, for the community, for the world, and for human history. Our misdirected faith in politics is the sin that we all have in common as Americans. <laughs> At least we're in agreement on that. We all ignore God when it comes to stuff like this. But our common hope is in a king who wielded immense cosmic authority to serve his enemies, to die in their place, to forgive them while they killed him. And it's that common hope, it's that common hope that will unite us. It's the only thing that we can cling to together in every type of debate in every type of pandemic or election year that we have to suffer through. And this is not just a reminder for a year like 2020, it's a reminder for any year. Let's pray. Father, I don't know whether our silence is because we are humbled or angry or confused or just sad. But I pray that in the silence, Your Son would speak to us. And I pray that in the silence, our souls would keep in step with His Spirit. And that in the silence, Your Spirit would sow seeds of wisdom and peace and unity and reconciliation.
among us. For the sake of our risen but suffering Lord, the King of kings. Amen.